0: And we're in the gospel according to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. New Testament, we are in again John chapter 3. So turn there with me as they leave. I'll read today's scripture lesson and then we'll jump right into it. John chapter 3, verse 22, until the end of the chapter. John chapter 3, verse 22. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John. They said to him, Rabbi... Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For, whom, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. May God a blessing to the reading. ...of his holy word this morning. We are in chapter 3. 11th sermon of our series. Last week we finished up the conversation... ...in Jerusalem... ...between Jesus... ...Nicodemus. Of course Nicodemus is, is a Pharisee. He's a Bible scholar. He's an Old Testament scholar. He's a member of a very powerful... ...and influential ruling body... ...in the temple called the Sanhedrin. And he's having this conversation... With Jesus, who is God, right? It doesn't matter uh, how many uh, awards you win for the Hebrew of the year. It's having a conversation with God Almighty. It's, just, it's not an equal conversation. And God tells him, Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless he was born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, the very realm, the very rule, first rule then realm of God. Jesus said to Nicodemus that this should not be a surprise to you. Don't be shocked by it. You must be born again. You're an Old Testament scholar. Don't you know in the Old Testament where God spoke about this new covenant uh, that he would sprinkle you with water. He would sprinkle his people with water and make them clean. He would give them a new heart and his spirit would be put within their own hearts. They would give them a new spirit, a new heart. His spirit will come to them. Jesus then goes on to tell Nicodemus about the sovereignty of the spirit, the evidence of the spirit, chapter 3, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from, where it's going, but so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus still doesn't get it, and Jesus lays on him, chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, the resolution to his question, how could a man be born again? And Jesus pulls out a a narrative from the Old Testament uh, and says to him, remember how God sent ravenous snakes into the camp of the Israelites who were judged because they were complaining and whining and, and not trusting in God's provision. But then in God's mercy, he sent Moses in with a pole with a snake on it, and those who looked to the pole were healed. They were saved. They were given life back. And Jesus says in verse 14 of chapter 3 to Nicodemus, same as me, as the Son of Man is lifted up in the pole, those who look to him, those who trust him, those who look to God's provision will be healed. They will have life. Last week, we looked at verse 16, John three sixteen, Very familiar, probably one of the most familiar passages of all of Scripture. And we looked at it within its context. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And we said that the world in its context, in the verses before and after 16, is a world that was dark. It was a world that had... Um, uh, People in it that were not trusting in God's provision, verse 14 and 15. Verse 16, 17, and 18 It was a world that was already condemned. 18, 19, and 20, there were darkness. There were people who loved darkness, who loved to, to run to the dark, who refused to come to the light. That's the world. This world is a dark place. It's a spiritually dead people. That is the world in which Jesus came to. It wasn't this understanding that this world is this lovable people. No, it is the love that God sent his son into a dark world where darkness prevails, where light shines. Look at verse 21, is where we ended last week, verse 21, where the light shines. People would rather be in darkness than love the light. But in verse 21 of chapter 3, Jesus finishes and he says, but whoever does what is true, see that, comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen. That his works have been carried out in God. Now the word light we'll see in the gospel according to John many times, over 20 times, is connected to Jesus. So those who come to Jesus, those who, who come to the light, come to Jesus, their, their sins have been forgiven. They're the ones that look to the pole, they look to the cross, they've been forgiven. They can walk in the light and God empowers them. And, God, and this is what John is saying, that if you come to the light and you believe in the truth... It's not that the light doesn't expose our sin. Light exposes my sin. But when it does, we don't have to run. Like those in darkness, we can embrace the light. We can walk in the truth. Why? Because in the gospel, we see the worth of Christ. We see all that he has done, his substitutionary death. And we stand with the disciples who say later on, Lord, where else could we go? Lord, whom shall we go to? You are the one who has words of eternal life. You're the one that offers life. And when we see all that Christ has done, we walk in light, we walk in truth. Not because of any power of our own or any strength of our own. It says in verse 21 very clearly, but it's the, that has been carried out in God. That has been, been formed by God. It's not about who we are. We talked about it just a moment ago. It's about all that God has done. Amen? Okay. So let's look at our narrative. That, that brings us up to where we are. Now, chapter 3, verse 22, where we pick up our story. We'll, we'll, we're just going to walk through this passage together. And let me just give you four different, so you can follow along, four different um, uh, categories or headings of the passage as we look through. So we'll see the activity. We'll see this baptism going on. And then we'll see the attitude of, of not only John the Baptist, but the attitude of John the Baptist's disciples. You need an attitude check, okay? And then we'll see the authentication. We'll see the truth of what Christ is claiming and what we need to do and how to respond to that. And then we'll end with the acquittal. What is this chapter 3 all about? We're going to end on verse 36. That's where we're at. Number one, the activity. Look at verse 22 with me. It says, after this, okay? So conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus is over. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there. And he was baptizing. New scene, new scenario. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful and people were coming and being baptized. So you have two baptisms, Jesus, John, people coming to both. Verse 24, John had not been yet put in prison, kind of a chronological order we'll talk about in a minute. Now a discussion, verse 25, arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John, they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look. He is baptizing, and all are going to him, okay? So let's set the scene. John is saying this is where Jesus went. Jesus was in Jerusalem. He was at the temple. He was dealing with Nicodemus, and then Jesus leaves, and he goes to the countryside, uh, which is northwest. Jerusalem's here. He's going northwest, a little bit outside of Jerusalem, and he's out in, in, in a countryside, and he's baptizing. Okay, that's that's the scene. Now, we learn in chapter 4, verse 2, we'll see next week, that Jesus wasn't actually doing the baptisms. Jesus' disciples, those who were following him, were were doing the baptisms for Jesus, chapter 4, verse 2. It says here, though, the word remain there. Jesus leaves Jerusalem, and he goes northwest into an area, and it says he remained there. Interesting word, convicting word. The word means, it's a vague word, it it, it kind of points to what Jesus was doing out in this world. His disciples were baptizing, and there's this indefinite period of time. He remained there. We don't know how long. But it kind of gives the sense that there was this unhurried, restful, maybe, ministry, undeterminate, not really sure, but he was there for a while. That's kind of what he's saying. And and maybe, this is conjecture, I don't know, maybe... John wants to let us know that Jesus gathered up his original, you know, the, the beginning of his disciples, those who would follow him early on. And he's out in this wilderness, out in this place, and he's just spending some quality time, time quantity time, just ministering, you know, uh, discipling. You want to use mentoring these young men who would follow him. And I got to tell you, I stopped in my tracks when I read that verse. How much unhurried time do we spend with Jesus? How much indefinite amount of time of sitting and listening to Jesus do we spend? I am a list guy. It's Christmas time. I have this ongoing list. It just never ends. I take stuff off. I put stuff on. I want to remind you as I remind myself, we need some unhurried quality time with Jesus. We need to sit back, open our Bibles, read and pray and spend time with the master. That's what I think they were doing. Now, John is saying that the Baptist, different guy, right? John the Apostle wrote the book. John the Baptist is, is actively baptizing near Enam, or Salim, near Enam. Anom, depending on how you say it. It's a medical term. It means that there was a place, they don't know exactly where it is, somewhere near Samaria. It's getting ready for chapter 4. We're going to go into Samaria. But he's saying he was somewhere where there was springs. That's what the word means. There's plenty of water. Why was there plenty of water, and why was that necessary for John to be there? Because he was baptizing. Okay? For all of you who don't agree with full immersion, there's your proof text right there. Lots of water baptizing. All right, even John Calvin says in his commentary, much water indicates that Jesus and John were plunging the whole body beneath the water. That's exactly what's going on. Look at verse 24. As this was going on, the writer wants to give us a little chronological kind of snippet. He says, John the Baptist had not been put in prison yet. You know why that's there? John 1, verse 18, up to now, all that's going on, It was not written in any of the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They pick up Jesus' ministry after this. So this author, eyewitness, ministering with Jesus and letting us know this is all going on before the other three synoptic gospels, which were written at the time, had even mentioned. In those gospels, Jesus comes on the scene ministering, and all this is taking place even before that. And that's important, because when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, excuse me, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Synoptic means similar. Um, you'll find that Jesus uh, is calling his disciples to leave their nets and follow him. And it seems like, you know, it's the first time they met, but that's not really accurate. They did drop everything and it did go, and it showed great, you know, loyalty and love to Jesus. But this is all going on. So when you're reading your Bibles, you know, chapter 1, verse 18 of John through here, not written in any synoptic, it's, it's, it's silent. So that's, that's kind of, he's given us that kind of insight right there, okay? Now, Verse 25 tells us that a discussion arose. See that? The actual words mean to express a forceful opinion. So there was some dispute going on. Some commentators even think an argument. So an argument arose, you see that, between John the Baptist, his disciples, and a Jew. He's not named, over purification. So now there's an argument that's going on. There's a baptism, and now there's a discussion going on. Purification, remember John... Chapter 2, verse 4, with Cana, Jesus takes the water, tells them to get the purification pots, fill them with water, and he turns it into wine, showing that Jesus is the new one, the, new, the, the, the better wine, okay? So that's the word purification. But you look at this verse, and as I'm reading this text, it really, doesn't, it really doesn't say that that statement had anything to do with baptism. It says in verse 25, a discussion arose between John's disciples and Jews over purification, So there's baptism, there's purification, and then the question they really ask or the the statement they really make is it's not about purification. You kind of just, you kind of look at the text going, all right, I'm not quite sure. I mean, what kind of baptism was it? John's baptism, we know, is preparatory, is a baptism of repentance. What was Jesus' baptism? I don't know, the text doesn't really say. I don't think it's a New Testament like we do, the death, burial, and resurrection. A picture of that hadn't happened yet. So maybe there was some sort of newness, authority that Jesus was having, and maybe maybe it was a baptism to repentance because Jesus comes on the scene preaching what? Repentance like John. It doesn't really say, but look what the disciples wind up saying after all this narrative, this scene. Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan. You bore witness. Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. I don't know. It, it appears that the issue of purification, even baptism, in a sense of who has greater authority, it wasn't really about that. It was really about pride. And that's what the writer wants us to see more than anything. It had nothing really to do with purification, it had everything to do with pride. Okay, there's every, all kinds of clues in this. Look what he says. That guy, N I V, that guy, you know, he. You know, the one that, you didn't say Jesus, they said he, you know, that guy. You know, the guy you bore witness, the guy that you keep shouting, telling everybody that you ain't even worthy to untie his dirty feet, his sandals and his dirty feet. That guy, that guy. You know, it's like, really? That guy? That's who Jesus is, that guy. Look, all are going to him. Well, that's not true. It's an exaggeration, it's hyperbole. They're they're trying to make a point. You know what they're saying? Rabbi, you're the star. You're the one that has all these crowds. You're the one that's the prophet. You're the one that people are following. And now look at your ministry. It's diminishing. Everyone's going to that guy. The one over there. Yeah, the one that you keep talking about. That's where everybody's going. Your ministry is diminishing. And you know what? So is ours. That's what the disciples are saying. How difficult is it? Don't raise your hand because it is. When you're involved in ministry... And there are other ministries that are flourishing more than yours. It's a struggle. Every ministry leader and every pastor. If someone tells you it's not true, they're lying to you. I'll just tell you that right up front. Here we see John's disciples exposing their competitive hearts. Up to this point, droves and and all kinds of people were coming out to see John. I think it was um, Matthew says they came from all over Jerusalem and Judea, the whole region of Jordan. Luke says that multitudes upon multitudes come out to hear John preach. You has got religious people, tax collectors, rich, poor, soldiers, who knows, but probably all kinds of people coming. They even said John was a prophet, maybe even Elijah, reincarnated. I mean, this guy had fame. Here's the principle. Catch this. Here's the principle. The degree, degree, the degree of success of any ministry is not how many people follow you, me, but how many follow Jesus because of you, through you. It's not what you do. It's not how many people you get. It's how many people Jesus gets. Amen? Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. And this baptism activity that's going on and this statement that's being said, and the crowds that are, that are going now from John to Jesus gives John an opportunity, the Baptist that is, to put his disciples' attitude in check. Look at verse 27. He says, listen, a person cannot receive even one thing, unless it is given him from heaven. Sound familiar? The wind blows where it wills, Nicodemus. (laughs) You don't know where it's coming, where it's going. You see its effects, but you know what? It is sovereign. John looks at this prideful and somewhat conceited disciples and affirms his subordinate role to the Messiah. He's the heralder of the Messiah. It was a God thing. That's what he's saying. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 on spiritual gifts. There's a verse in there that a lot of people like to skip over. He gives gifts according to his will, not yours. No matter how hard and try, you try and pray for one of the spiritual gifts, whether it's tongues or whether it's preaching, whatever it is, God will determine who gets what gift. It's not up to you. It's up to God. That's what he's saying. It's a God thing. And John is like, listen, if God is taking me in a different direction, if God is shutting me down, if God is is ending my ministry, to God be the glory. To God be the glory. In fact, he says, I rejoice over it. So again, principle. All that we do as, as, as proclaimers, demonstrators of the gospel, you and I, and the gifts and talents we have, is a gracious gift of God. That's what he's saying. No one's entitled to it and if we keep that attitude and we keep that perspective you know what there won't be jealousy because it's not about our kingdom it's about his that's what the scriptures teaching us that somehow we may may i may i never get to the place where i think that god needs me may we never get to that place leaders pastor elders uh, Ministry leaders deacons deaconess that god needs me. In fact, his hands are tied if i'm not here doing his bidding I don't know what he would do Right That's a bad place to be now. I'm not saying god doesn't use you. He does He does he uses people he chooses to use us But remember those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be what? humbled D.A. Carson, listen to what he writes This is convicting So you get this once on Sunday. I got to do this stuff all week long, just rehearsing and going over this. D.A. Carson, deep discontent over God's wise, sovereign disposition of people and things would in that instance betray not only unbelief and faithlessness, but the worst form of perennial human sin, constant sin, the arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands, end quote. I'll make that decision, Lord. I'll tell you what you need and what we need. Verse 28, he says, you yourselves, you yourselves know and bear witness that I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. Again, sound familiar? Chapter one, John the Baptist preaching, preaching. Jews come up from Jerusalem and he, and, and he testifies. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm, the, I'm not the prophet. I'm the one with the voice. Isaiah, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's me, I'm the voice. I have my time, I have my moment, I have my ministry. But it's not to elevate and exalt me, it's to elevate and exalt Christ. There's no rivalry between these two guys. One day there was a Presbyterian pastor in Australia, and he was introducing a man by the name of J. Hudson Taylor. And when he was introducing him, he was using all these wonderful words, these superlatives, and he even used the word great. Now, if you don't know who he is, Hudson Taylor, the one that was being introduced, he was a missionary to China. He founded a China Inland Mission. The man was there for over 50 years, responsible for bringing 800, 700, 800 people to China. He worked to start all kinds of schools. Thousands of people came to faith through his ministry. Powerful guy from the world's perspective. He gets up to the microphone after all these introductory, wonderful greatness, and he says this. Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. I'm convinced in this passage here that we see John correcting their attitudes is a good balance for ministry. It's a good... It, it, It speaks of God's sovereignty... Nothing can happen. You know, nothing is given to us, but it's from heaven. But it speaks of its humility that propels us into ministry. Here, this is what I'm saying. John knew that his giftedness, his calling was from heaven. He knew that God was sovereign. He didn't sit back and become lazy. He knew what his giftedness and it propelled him into ministry. He, he, he was bold. He was strong. He was proclaiming. He knew that his gift was from God, and it didn't stop him from preaching the gospel and, and preaching the message that God had given him. So when you know and I know that God has placed you where he wants you to be, he has sovereignly given you the talents and the treasures and the gifts to be used for his glory, we don't want to be lazy about it. We want to get busy. There's a certain unction in the heart of the man and woman who knows I'm doing what God called me to do. But the balance is whatever the results are, loving people, demonstrating the love of the gospel and declaring it with words, inevitably it is God's. It belongs to him. It's because of his hand. Jealousy has no place. Self-righteousness has no place. It's a gift from God. Paul told the church of Corinthian, if you ever read 1 Corinthians, it's just a, a jacked-up church. We preached through that book a few years back. It's a messed-up church. The number one problem was division and dissension. Even with all the jacked-up, messed-up place you know, that it was, Paul deals with division immediately. You know what he says in the midst of this division? He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters anything but only God who gives the growth. Humble, I know this is what you've given me I'm going in mission and I, But you know what, to praise be God that, That's his attitude and He's trying to correct his disciples' attitude Look at verse 29 The one who has the bride is the bridegroom The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him Rejoices greatly when he hears The bridegroom's voice I hear his voice He's the one I've been saying He's the one everyone's going to But you know what, look at it says Therefore this joy of mine is now Great complete, fulfilled. His proper attitude and perspective helped him to understand his role. And he uses a parable. He says, you know what? You know the friend of the bridegroom. is like the best man. You know what? He's responsible to make sure things are going right. He's responsible for the, for the wedding, kind of making sure things go straight. It functions well. Um, he organizes details. He's even responsible. The best man and, this, and this, this friend of the bridegroom is responsible to make sure that the bride and the bridegroom come together and meet. He's watching this and he's saying, this wedding's happening. I'm doing my job. I'm watching it happen. And, and I'm watching this groom unite with his bride. Having done that, he says, my joy is complete. You see the news that this band of disciples of John brought to him is exactly what he's been longing to hear. It filled his cup up with joy. All genuine, real ministry is Christ-centered, not man-centered. Leon Morris wrote this. This is a tough statement. Listen to this. It is not particularly easy, it is not particularly easy in this world, to gather followers... About one for a serious purpose, but when they are gathered, it is infinitely harder to detach them and firmly insist they go after another. It is the measure of John's greatness that he did just that. End quote. John, things are going really good. We got lots of crowds coming, and now the crowd is dwindling. And you know what? We're declining. Jesus is growing. We don't like it. There's fame. There was prestige. The lights were flashing. People were coming. They wanted to hear what I have to say. And now, you know what? The friend of the bridegroom, sitting by, crowds are going. He's full of joy. And those watching and saying, you know what? Our job is over and I don't like this. Look what he says. The great joy of mine is now complete. Here's another truth. Here's another principle we take away with today. The root of eternal joy. And everlasting joy is that you and I must decrease and he must increase. Verse 30. The final testimony of John. Succinct, somewhat climatic. He must increase. I must decrease. Must, that word must is is a strong word. It is not this grudgingly reluctant, complaining unwillingness to humble oneself. It is the overwhelming, wonderful, joyful word of, of, of praising and, and, and looking to the supremacy of Christ. That's what he's saying. John is on the ascendancy, Costinger writes. John perceives his ministry coming to a close. It's not just a personal issue. It is a transition from the Baptist to Jesus, a crucial salvation historical watershed where the Old Testament is going out and in comes the new, the Messiah. Two things for me, and I'll share them with you. Two things for me that have helped me to try and at least curb pride, keep my eyes properly on the king, his kingdom, not on me, not on things I'm doing, but on Jesus. Two things I want to share with you to help me do that. And maybe you can learn from it as well. Two statements that were made to me, or I'm sure some of you heard them already, but I'll share them with you. Number one, what is humility? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not superiority. Inferiority, excuse me. It's not inferiority. It's not thinking, oh my, God will never use me. Oh, look at me! It's not er. You know that's really just another form of pride. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not inferiority. The other one that that I've learned along the way is humility is confidence properly placed. It's not superiority. You see, if we have our eyes and our minds and our hearts on other people, look how well they're doing. Look what's going on over there. We'll always find a reason to be prideful. The enemy wants us to find people in ministry or doing what we do that either do it better than us or worse. So that we can either be envious over their successes or proud. Oh, we could do it better. But when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, his kingdom, his glory, we will be captivated. By the one Jesus who is infinitely above all. And we will consider ourselves just grateful servants of the king. That's what John is coming to. That is what John is sharing with this group. That is the secret to joy. That's the secret. Does your ultimate and eternal joy rest in your circumstances? Things like what you have maybe. Some things that you don't have. Or does your eternal joy come from knowing Christ and seeing him get glory? Family, you'll never, we'll, we'll never truly understand what the joy of the Lord is and what Scripture teaches about joy until we understand that ultimately it's tied in giving God glory. Giving him glory gives you joy. They're linked together. And sometimes we, we, we chase things around thinking this will give us happiness, this will give us joy. God wired us so that as we praise and exalt and make much of him. Our joy is complete. It's what we need, and it's the way we were created. uh, Arthur Pink says this, Humility is not the product of direct cultivation. Rather, it is the byproduct. The more I try to be humble, the less shall I attain unto humility. But if I am truly occupied with the one who was meek and lowly in heart, if I am constantly beholding his glory, his value, his worth in the mirror, Of God's word, then shall I be changed into the same image from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3. John knows, he accepted his his, his reality that many were coming to him, now they're all going to Jesus. Old era, new era, there's the Messiah, it's not the voice of him anymore, it is the voice of Jesus we ought to follow, right? That's the attitude. Look at the authentication. Now, in your Bibles, if you have your Bible with you, I hope you do, you'll look at verse 30. Of our text ends with a quotation mark. Some scholars believe that John the Baptist is finished in verse thirty, and in verse thirty one like we saw last week, it was a little bit of a, uh, not a little bit, but a, a god ordained a, a a a God thing that John the apostle now puts his words in that, that it was the direct uh, work of the spirit in the apostle, and he kind of just adds his divine thoughts in this that 's up to you if you want. You can study that in community group, that's fine. But all scriptures God breathed, so it doesn't really matter. Um, this is the word of the Lord. So John speaks, and he says this. John, he says, There is one who is from the earth, and there is one who is from heaven. You see that? In verse 31. Verse 31 reads this. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth. What's he talking about? He's saying, I preach the gospel. I'm baptizing. I'm declaring here on earth. But there's one who's coming. He's not from the earth. He's above all. And therefore, he is the one that we should be following. That's what he's saying. He is from all eternity. Verse 32. He bears witness, that's Jesus, to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Again, very familiar, Nicodemus, chapter 3, verse 11. Jesus says to him, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness. to Talk about the Trinity, I believe. Bear witness to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. In the gospel, according to John, you're going to see the word witness and the word testimony a lot. Family, don't... Um, how can I put this? That's, a, that's an important word. Testimony, even today and in biblical times and antiquity of, 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 of years ago, Testimony is very, very important. People giving witness and testimony to truth verifies its truthfulness. So when, it, when John and Jesus, they're all using these terms, we testify, we are witnessing, it's serious. A, a witness, a testimony is a person who has firsthand knowledge. And Jesus is saying, I was with the Father. I have firsthand knowledge, and I have provable uh, uh, facts of history that I can establish even the testimony of one witness does not constitute truth in the Bible. It reminds me of a story. I heard of a man who was accused of biting another man's ear off. I know you're thinking Mike Tyson, but that's not the guy I'm talking about. <laughs> this one man was accused of biting another man's ear off. There was only one witness. Unfortunately, he was a backwoods kind of guy. Redneck, can I say? If there's anybody, I'm sorry. Uh, you can call me a city slicker if you want. Um, and he arrived on the scene after it was all over. So this defense attorney was hired by, by the one who's accused of being the one who bit his ear off. This, this, this city slicker attorney says to himself, all I got to do is put this country bumpkin up on the stage, on the stand. That's all I got to do is, and I'll just tear apart his character, his credibility, credibility and my, my client will walk free. So he calls this Backwoods kind of guy to the stand. And he says, let me ask you, you know, in his nice slick shoes and his three-piece suit. Let me ask you, were you there when the argument started? No, sir. Were you present when a fight broke out? No, sir. I just arrived at the scene when it was all over. So, the attorney says, you weren't present when a defendant allegedly bit this man's ear off. The man hung his head and admitted, nope. No, I wasn't. The young Cocky attorney turned back to his seat and said, Your Honor, I rest my case. Just then, this redneck backwards guy leaned over the microphone and said, But I was there when he spit it out. <laughs> whoever receives, verse 33, receives his testimony, receives the truth of Christ, receives the truth of John the Baptist, receives the truth of John the Apostle, who was an eyewitness of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, those, verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. God is true. Family, you remember in Genesis 38, some of you were here, some of you weren't. Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, father of the 12 tribes, Judah, had sexual intercourse with his daughter-in-law. He thought it was a prostitute. This is in the Bible. I am not making it up. Genesis is a wild story. She says to him, listen, you owe me. He's like, I don't have any money. He says, I'll give you my seal. I will give you my signet, my cord, and my staff until I can come back and pay you. What that was was a cylinder that you would put in wax on a contract, say, that, that showed its authenticity. It showed its um, not only authenticity but um, personal guarantee that the owner would, would you know, be back to pay. It was was a way to show personal uh, accountability. It was a way to show ownership, authenticate the person who's making the agreement. John is saying those who accept Christ, those who accept his truth claims, God's testimonies are not merely entering into relation with another person, but accepting what God is saying to be true. They hear, they see, they tested the testimony, and they put their seal on it. They accept the truth. They accept the testimony. They accept the witness and the, about the glorious, eternal origins of Jesus and his revelatory nature. Look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit, what? Without measure. It doesn't mean being filled with the Spirit. I don't think that's what it means. It means that Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. If you and I were given the Spirit without measure, our heads would blow up. <laughs> right? The Bible calls us earthly clay that's, that's, that's fading away. This is talking about the fullness of the Spirit. John, We saw John talk about it at the baptism. When you see the Spirit, it will remain on him. He's the one. The Spirit was given to Jesus in the fullness of measure. We forget about that. We forget that Jesus just didn't launch into ministry in his own strength. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and remained on him. And what John is saying is the fullness of the Spirit bears witness. God the Father bears witness. Jesus has full authority in authenticating his witness, his testimony, because he was there. The Holy Spirit was poured out on him. He's given testimony. We say it's true. We put our seal on what Jesus is saying. That's what's going on here. And he uses that term seal. We've been calling this series, it's not up there, but the invisible made visible because the gospel, according to John, is a testimony of who Jesus is. You can't come in here with your preconceived notion. You've got to let Jesus speak for himself. The writer of Hebrews even talks about who Jesus is. He says, long ago, as in many times, God spoke. God spoke through all the prophets. But now, in these last days, He spoke into his son who is an heir of all things through whom also he created the world he jesus is the radiance of the glory of god the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe upholds the universe by the word of his power family that's a statement no other religion prophet philosophy has made you need to hear that from jesus you need to hear jesus say i am the way singular and exclusive I am the way, the truth, singular and exclusive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Singular and exclusive. That's exactly what he's saying. And if you're here this morning and you hear this testimony, you're accountable for its truthfulness. Jesus is the only truly reliable witness to who God is. And he's the only one that can speak to us on what God requires. Now look at the last two verses of this chapter. Listen. Listen. This is eternally, enormously important that you get these last two verses. Look with me at the acquittal. Verse 35, the father, what, loves the son. We'll see that over and over. And has given, what, all things into his hands. You Know what that means? All things into his hand is a metaphor of placing rulership in the hands of Jesus. He gives them all things into his hand. Hand is the rulership. Jesus is declaring his deity, don't let anyone tell you not, that his deity, his sovereignty and authority has been given to Jesus Christ. It's unmistakable. It's unmistakable. And that's why he could say in verse 36, we'll end on this verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Present tense. Not future expectation, but present Already experiencing. If you believe, you have eternal life now. And look what he says. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John says there are two ways to go. There are two choices to go. Genuine faith, defiant disobedience. That's the option. Also notice with me that this verse is in the midst of this whole chapter where God is talking about his love. God talks about his love and, and sending his son. God talks about condemnation, judgment. He talks about love. He talks about wrath. You say, well, wait a minute. Which one is it? When we talk about the wrath, that's why we do expository preaching. I've got to deal with this verse. Family, this is the word of God speaking, not Lou. The Bible says that God's wrath remains. What does that mean? What is God trying to say? Here are a couple things you need to know about God's wrath. Number one. We don't understand, and we don't want to talk about the wrath of God because we don't understand that love and wrath go together. Love and anger goes together. We don't understand that it's linked together, it's tied together. Anger and love go together. God does not have a split personality. He's not a bipolar. God, our creator, our provider, who loves us with an everlasting love, gets angry. That's just reality. He gets angry when his creation is victimized vandalized, marred, stained, broken, devalued, defaced. I mean, you name it, he gets mad. Exodus 22, I love this verse. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. Don't take advantage. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry, the Lord says. My anger will be aroused. I'll kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Like, this is my creation that you are just abusing. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. Really? Hmm. Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. I don't think Jesus said it that way. I did it just as a contrast. You know what? You guys are traveling around. You know what? You're really making people a child of hell. You really shouldn't do that. I don't think so. First of all, woe is a condemnation. Woe, I think Jesus said. You scribe, you Pharisees. <laughs> You, 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 you travel across, you make one single proselyte, like someone just like you, you make him twice as much a child of hell. That's what I think Jesus said. He tore, tore heads off in the temple, right? I mean, he went in the temple, he's just throwing stuff. He's so angry. So it's okay. Does that say that God doesn't love you? You say, oh, if God is loving, how could he be angry? I would say, how could a loving God not be angry? If you love someone, don't you get angry when things happen to them, evil happens to them? How can you watch the television and see these mass shootings and not have some arousement of anger? If you are, you're dead. You better call a doctor. What if, what if someone in the mass shooting killed someone like your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, your child, your grandchild? How much more angry would you be? Okay, it's okay. Okay. Here's God looking down on all that he made, all that he provided for, and look what jacked-up world we're living in, that you and I are part of. Of course he's going to get angry. What kind of God would he be if he wasn't? What kind of would he be even worthy of worship if he didn't get angry at sin? Right? So if we don't get angry, it's a failure to love. Anger is a natural response to threats of people we love. Now, we're jacked up, messed up people. Unlike God, God's perfect. So we have issues with our anger. God does not, which brings me to number two. First is God's anger and love is one in who he is in his nature. Number two, God gets angry. Jesus gets angry. But it's not like us. Okay, it's not like us. Too often we project our explosive, you know, maybe somebody we grew up with, maybe a mom, maybe a dad, maybe an aunt, or whatever. We have this explosive, uncontrolled, short-tempered anger And then we project that kind of wrath onto God. That's not true. God's wrath is his settled, unchanging anger that's displeased against sin and evil. His wrath is a response to his holiness. He is perfect and just and hates sin. Again, D.I. Carson said, God's wrath is not some impersonal principle of retribution, but the personal response of a holy God who comes to his own world, sadly, fallen into rebellion, and finds few who want anything to do with him, end quote. You say, no, 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 God is love. It says so in John 3.16. It says so in First John. I would say, yes, it does, but he's also holy and he's just, and he gets angry at sin. So do you. If God were not angry at sin, as I said, he wouldn't be worthy of our worship. The wrath of God in the Bible, the way the Bible betrays it, expresses God's intolerance of sin and evil. And the kingdom of God, we're back to Nicodemus, the kingdom of God will not tolerate any form of sin. We're not going to be stabbing, shooting, killing, lying, cheating, manipulating each other in the kingdom of God. It's perfect. It's shalom. We can't get in. And that's why he says, John is making clear, believing in this son is the only way to inherit life and escape wrath. It is commanded by God, and it's a failure to trust him, isn't a failure to obey him. This belief in disobedience is the same. Those who believe obey the son by responding to him, trusting in him, relying upon him, worshiping him, trusting him in all that he has done. And those who do not believe, who do not respond, are in disobedience. They disobey him. And the only way, family couple more minutes i want you to catch this i want to wrap this up the only way you can understand the wrath of god angry towards evil and sin and his great love for you is on the cross it is the cross the only way to understand god could be loving and wrathful is on the cross because on the cross the wrath of god and the love of god meet and are satisfied for god so loved the world that he gave his son as a substitute Who stands in your place. The cross is the answer. Like the pole that was lifted up. Jesus is lifted up on the cross. And there when he was crucified, he satisfies the fierce and holy wrath of almighty God. Crucified. Where we ought to be. And then God's justified anger on sin fell. In all its power, in all its severity, Not on us who deserve it, but on his son. Then God, in his love for us, doesn't judge us for our rebellion. He judges his son. And instead, he can extend love and grace and forgiveness and mercy to you and to me. Ones who don't deserve it. We were alienated in our minds. We love darkness. The Bible says, we read it earlier. We're already condemned. We're already objects of wrath. He has every right to destroy us without explanation. But listen, Jesus on the pole, on the cross, that God sent him in the world to accomplish that substitutionary atonement for us. Jesus drinks the wrath of God toward evil, turning away his rightful wrath toward us, dying in our place and taking what we deserve upon himself. We're in, we, just a, an hour ago, the, we gathered together for communion with the band. And I was just reminding myself as I remind them, we talk about the cross and the anguish and the, and the pain it must have cost Jesus to hang on a cross with nails through his hands, through his feet, crown of thorns, and hang there to die. It doesn't compare to God's judgment and wrath and condemnation that was poured out on him for you and for me. That's the cross. Jesus bears all the blame All the punishment poured out on him. And his wrath is satisfied. God's wrath is satisfied by Jesus on the cross. His love is then extended to you with grace and mercy. That's what the table is all about. That's what this John 3.16 is all about. For God so loved the world that he gave his son to a world that's condemned, to a world that has darkness, to a world that needs and should be and deserves to be judged. But listen, family, he died for you. He loves you. And what's going to be your response today? Maybe somebody here, you know what? You, you don't want to talk about God's anger and God's wrath. It remains on you. But there's an escape today. And his name is Jesus. And he came because he loves you. He came because he wanted to rescue you. He came because he wanted to pardon you. He came because he wanted you to escape the rightful wrath that deserves that you and I both deserve. Respond to him this morning. Trust in him this morning recognize that the judgment that you deserve was put on him and say, yes, I believe. I'm going to trust. Not in my own good, my own works. I'm going to trust in Jesus who absorbed this sacrifice in my place. The bread that's here, the cup, is a symbolic of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He drank the bread. He drank the cup on the cross. He said, I'm not going to drink it again until I come into the kingdom. And the Bible says that we should do it regularly until... He comes again. I want to call everyone to repentance. All of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. If you've never trusted in Christ, today's the day. The band's going to play in a moment. They're going to play through some music. I'm going to ask everyone just quietly sit in their seats. I'm going to be in the back. Bill Blake, one of the pastors, is going to be in the back. And we'll pray with you. If you need to come back, we'll pray with you. And we're just going to sit. We're going to repent of our sins. We're going to ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins. We're going to acknowledge his work on the cross. We're going to acknowledge that he died and took the wrath for you and for me. And then we're going to celebrate. When you're ready, you're going to come up and you're going to take the bread. You're going to take the cup. Because you're celebrating the forgiveness that God has offered to you. Maybe today's the first day. Maybe today's the first day you're going to drink of the cup and take of the bread. Because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That's my prayer. Father, In the quietness of our hearts We acknowledge thinking Through this idea of wrath and love Is is somewhat difficult for us to fully comprehend But Father we know without question That we are sinners I mean there's no question Lord We do not walk perfectly We have not in any way shape Given you all the glory that's due your name We have made other things our idols Rather than loving and worshipping you And, Father, that is called sin. But, Lord, we also want to publicly acknowledge that Jesus Christ is our sin-bearer, who took our wrath, who died in our place, who absorbed all the evil and wicked things that we have done upon himself, was buried. Third day, he rose again, announcing to the world, to us, that his sacrifice has been accepted. So, Father, as we go to communion, as we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, give us faith, help us to trust, help us to believe with our whole hearts this morning.